If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. You're listening to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm joined by Kelly Jensen while Jeff is on vacation. And we are recording on Thursday, August 17th. Kelly, hello. Hello. Thank you for joining me. I was really tempted to be like, this is usually a news and talk show about the world of books. But today it is a news and talk show about 1990s throwback concerts. <laughs> Honestly, that would be way more enjoyable than I think the news we have to talk about, um, if I'm being real. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I hadn't been on the Book Riot podcast until this year, I think. That's so wild I, to me. And now I think this is my third time this year. Um, and nothing is going to beat Nicholas, or Nicholas Bigelis. Um, <laughs> and so coming to this list of stories I was like wow I really missed that episode <laughs> yeah I uh, am really sad that I wasn't here the day that Jeff had to talk about Bigelis Dickelis I'm gonna regret that forever that was bad PTO oh. timing but you're right we have we should just be honest folks it's a bummer fest today mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. we have some interesting news to end on we might talk about a series trailer situation and we might also just decide we're tired of talking about the depressing news and condense it at some point and talk a little bit about uh, something that i've been working on for book riots a deep dive <laughs> newsletter that is the opposite <laughs> of depressing yeah. or maybe like depressing in a different way. Um, Kelly, I'm really glad that you are here this week, though. Um, when we are in the dog days of summer, publishing employees who get, you know, like Friday half days and, and are enjoying their summers seem to like have settled. There was really no news out of the industry this yeah, week. No. It's all um, book banning related. Hmm. And you are for folks listening, not just Book Riot's in-house expert on, in what's going on across the country in book bands, but really you've become a national, one of the leading national voices in what's happening here. So I was looking at the agenda and I was like, maybe Kelly should just host this episode. Oh. <laughs> Um, I'm both grateful for you and sorry that this is what we have to talk about today. <laughs> One of the things is like I get sent these kinds of stories like day in, day out, mm -hmm. and it's you know, you get to the point where you're like so immune to how mm. bad it's going to be that you're not even surprised anymore, which at some point is also depressing because you're yeah. like, yeah, well, I expected that to happen or I predicted that would happen. And, um, you know, it's I don't even know what to do or what to say at this point. Um, but we've got some stories that definitely need to be talked about because um, there's a lot to dig into. 
Yeah, I have the note here that you have a lot more details about one of these stories than the story (laughs) has. And I can't wait to find out about that. But first, let's take a quick break. Today's episode is brought to you by Revel Fiction and Double Take, the first book in a breathtaking new series from Lynette Eason. Detective James Cross has been honorably discharged from the Army Criminal Investigation Division due to wounds sustained. Meanwhile, physician assistant Lainey Jackson is going through some things. She's 18 months out from an attempted murder perpetrated by her ex, which ended when she managed to grab the weapon and shoot him. When he appears to have survived and is back to finish the job he started, Lainey insists it's not possible. But someone is trying to kill her and she does keep seeing his face. So Lainey and James must work together to find out who exactly is after her and why he wants her dead and failure is not an option. Pick up Double Take by Lynette Eason for tight and fast paced writing. U.S. Today bestselling author Lynette Eason will leave you breathless with this new book. It's the first in a brand new series. Thanks again to Revel Fiction and Double Take, the first book in a breathtaking new series from Lynette Eason for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of Anita De Monte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. So this is one of my most anticipated books of the year. It follows two women of color who are in the art world, but who also kind of sit outside of it because of a lack of privilege. So the story is told from both of their perspectives and it moves back and forth through time. So in 1985, Anita de is a rising star in the art world and she's found dead in New York City, right? And then in 1998, Raquel, a third year art history student, becomes involved with an older, more privileged art student and finds herself rising up the social ranks as a result. But then she also stumbles upon Anita's story and she sees parallels between Anita's story and her own. So Anita DeMonte Laughs Last is a propulsive, witty examination of power. Make sure to pick it up. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by William Morrow. I'll be dead in three months. Come tell my story. Imagine someone told you that. That's what Sebastian Trapp, a reclusive mystery novelist, told to his longtime correspondent Nikki Hunter, an expert in detective fiction. So with only a few months left to live, Trapp invites Nikki to his spectacular San Francisco mansion to help draft his life story, living alongside his beautiful second wife, Diana, his wayward nephew, Freddie, and his protective daughter, Madeline. But soon, Nikki finds herself caught in an irresistible case of real-life detective fever. Make sure to pick up End of Story by New York Times bestselling author A.J. Finn for a book that gives Knives Out, that gives White Lotus. You'll like this if you like books by Lucy Foley, Nita Prose, and others. So make sure to pick it up, check it out, and thanks again to William Morrow for sponsoring this episode. All right. Well, I am just going to let you host this first segment. Tell us what's <laughs> happening here. <laughs> um, so I will just start by saying that one of the projects I've been working on in conjunction with Danica, who is an associate editor at Book Riot, um, we have been working with every library to put together a national survey of parental perceptions of public libraries and contemporary issues related to public libraries. So 
there's going to be some really interesting data to be collected from this. Um, it's a survey that is going to go out to, you know, like a national um, pool of people. So it's not one that you'll be able to take unless like you're part of this pool. But uh, we will be responding or responding, um, sharing all of the information we get back. And it should be fascinating because it's it's going to look at how parents feel about, you know, trustworthiness in libraries and how they feel about age appropriateness in libraries, what they know about their local public library. Like, do they know, you know, how to request a book? Do they know how to, um, you know, use a program? Like, how do they value the different elements that a library offers in their community as well? So um, there's no other survey that's done something quite like this. So we're really looking forward to seeing like what what emerges. It's really incredible work, and it should be fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about the impetus for creating this survey? I assume that listeners will guess it grows out of wanting to have a sense of the like the real landscape against what the far right is saying about what parents want from libraries and parental rights and all of those things. But I'd like to hear a little bit more about the process and how it came about. Yeah. So I'm going to tell a little backstory, actually. Um, I've been working with every library for years now on book banning stuff. And um, John Tresca, who is the like head of every library, lives about an hour from me. So okay. he and I got together for coffee in January and just started talking about book banning stuff. And, you know, he had proposed this idea of us working together, organizations working together Proposing it as sort of like what you see sometimes with major media sources, mm-hmm. um, like you know NBC News, MSNBC, like that, those um, organizations who work with universities to do data collection and to then report on that data collection. So that was his proposal. He's like, how great would it be if, you know, we did like the back end data stuff um, and then you can report on it and write on it. And it just felt like a really natural, like, yeah, this makes a heck of a lot of sense. Like, we have a lot of similar interests and, like, this information is not out there. So, mm-hmm. you know, let's let's see what that looks like. And initially we had talked about public perceptions of the library. And then as we were doing our background research on, like, what information is already out there, what reports and surveys have been done, we realized that there hasn't been anything specifically targeted to parents. And Mm. with the rise of talking about parental rights and the talking points that the right uses there, we were like, this is the opportunity to really find out what parents think. Um, This is the first in what will be a uh, pair of surveys this year. Um, This one focuses specifically on the public library. The next one will focus on school libraries. So interesting. And is there any way that folks can join the pool of people that will be receiving these surveys? Or is that a closed group? It's a closed group. And I'll be honest, I don't know very much about okay. like, how that part is done. <laughs> um, <laughs> my my work and Danica's work has been on helping like um, write the questions and ensure Got that it. like we're getting to the heart of what it is we really want to know. And I never realized, like, I've done surveys and stuff before um, plenty of times, but 
it's so different when you're working with a, you know, a group of people. I think there are five of us who've been working on it and like realizing something that makes perfect sense to you, somebody reads in a totally different way and you're like, oh, that's a really good mm. point. Like that question doesn't actually ask what I think it asks. Um, and then, you know, fine tuning those questions to like get to exactly what it is you're hoping to get to. Well, I can't wait to see it. And I really can't wait to find out what the results are. And I'm sure we'll be talking about them here. Maybe we'll have you back on as the results of these surveys come out to to give us the deep dive. Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated, too, because I I think it's going to give a, you know, there have been at least four or five surveys in the last three or so years that have looked at like how people feel about book bans. Mm-hmm. This is much broader than that. This is much more about like the library itself and what it provides. And I think we're going to see similar results to the messaging that we're seeing from right wing media doesn't align with like what the actual public mm-hmm. feels. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, I was just about to ask if you had any hypotheses, but that kind of hits what I was looking for there. (laughs) (laughs) There. I certainly hope that we will find out that the voices we've been perceiving as a small group uh, actually are a small Mm -hmm. group. But let's, uh, we'll get that data one way or the other, I guess. Yeah. Um, Next up... This one is fascinating and both kind of like mind bending, but also feels like the inevitable conclusion of something. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Mason City Community School District, which is in Iowa, um, revealed this week that there's a, so there's a new law going into effect in Iowa, one of these book banning laws that requires books to be, quote, age appropriate and devoid of descriptions or visual depictions of a sex act. And they're supposed to go through all of the books in the school library to confirm whether that book can stay or whether it needs to go. That's a very big task. And school districts, I'm sure that you are aware, don't have a whole lot of extra resources right now. So looking to what tools might be available to them, Bridget Exman, uh, who is the, uh, where did her title go? Uh, superintendent or assistant superintendent of the school district, um, revealed that they have been using ChatGPT <laughs> to determine which books comply with the new rule. And so far, they've removed 19 titles, including The Color Purple, The Handmaid's Tale, Beloved, and kind of surprisingly, Friday Night Lights by Buzz Bissinger. <laughs> um, it's been a while since I read that one. Maybe it has some sexy times. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> my first thought reading this was, Knowing what I know about ChatGPT and what I've used it for, you have to engineer a specific prompt to get it to do any kind of task. And so I was imagining, Mm -hmm. like, what did they feed into ChatGPT? What kinds of questions did they ask it? And it turns out that you have that information? I do. Because uh, rather than simply repost the same story everywhere, I went straight to the source. I emailed this Bridget um, Mm -hmm. person and I said, hey, you know, um, what tool are you using? And she responded pretty quickly. Wow. And um, told me it was ChatGPT. And she gave some interesting background. And I'm going to preface this by saying that uh, there is very little guidance from the state of Iowa to the school libraries about what they need to do. So this has been a game of like, we don't know how to be in compliance with this because we mm. haven't been given like the proper tools or support to do this. And so I think what Mason City School District did is actually really smart. Um, you know, obviously book banning is bad, but there's a law. They have to do something. Mm. And the way that they have so 
faithfully followed the law on this one. <laughs> just like is brilliant, I think. Um, so the background on this story is that in the 20 years that they have records for Mason City School District has never had a book challenge or pulled. Interesting. Um, so this is so this is a new situation they're finding themselves in. And what they decided to do is they pulled some lists of like most challenged books. Okay. They went through those lists of most challenged books and they removed anything on there that did not include some kind of reasoning related to sex or depiction of sex, mm-hmm. anything like that. Um, so books that were banned for violence or like religious reasons or race, race reasons, um, mm-hmm. those weren't included in their final list. They then took their final list, compared it to their um, library catalog and only looked at the titles that were in their library catalog that were on this list now. So then what they did is they wrote the script for chat GPT. I am literally on the edge of my seat. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So um, the law in Iowa states that the book cannot have a description or depiction of a sex act and a sex act according to Iowa Code 702.17, is a very specific thing. Um, Tell us, Kelly. Okay, I've, like, I've got it pulled up, and now it's not loading. But it, it's, it's a very specific thing. It explains exactly what uh, physical acts are considered a quote-unquote sex act. Um, it will be linked in okay. the um, literary activism newsletter that will go out before this podcast airs so you'll be able to like look up we'll link it in the show notes um so anyway so they put in this prompt it's does name of the book contain a description or a depiction of a sex act that was Mm. the whole prompt and so that's how they determined what books would be pulled um you know i i put this exact prompt into chat GPT to see what would happen. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I started with a book that wasn't on the list, which is Romeo and Juliet. Um, does, <laughs> Romeo and, does Romeo and Juliet contain a depiction or a description of a sex act? And uh, the answer is no. Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare does not contain a description or a depiction of a sex act. And then there's a short um, hmm. little description. What was interesting to me, is that when I put that prompt in, it showed up in like an orange color and it said, this content may violate our content policy. If you believe huh. this to be an error, please submit your feedback. Your input will aid our research in this area. I was like, huh, interesting. So I haven't I run into get- that before. Yeah, I had it happen then when I put in the first title that I looked up from the list of 19 titles from the school district. Okay. Um, so I at- I asked ChatGPT, um, same question, same exact query. Does 19 Minutes by Jody Picot contain a description or a depiction of a sex act? Got the same little warning. Hmm. And then it, I will read exactly what it says. Uh, 19 Minutes is a novel by Jody Picot that explores the aftermath of a high school shooting and its impact on the community. While the book addresses mature themes and includes discussions about relationships and sexuality, it is not 
primarily focused on explicit descriptions or depictions of sex acts. However, Hmm. it's possible that the book may contain some references to sexual themes, but they are typically handled in a sensitive and context-appropriate manner. If you're considering reading the book and are concerned about its content, I recommend checking reviews or summaries to get a better understanding of the themes and content it addresses. Keep in mind that interpretations of content can vary from person to person, so what one reader might find explicit, another might not. Now, my takeaway when I read this one was that because it does say that it has, it it does not say no, that it does not have sex acts. That's Mm -hmm. why it was included in the list of titles that did. I see. Um, And then that sex acts part is the key. That two word um, Mm -hmm. phrase is, is really what they're honing in on, which I think like for the position they're in is genius. This is what the law says. They're going to follow the law to the T. It's really clever. And they're relying on kind of the thing that a large language model is built to do pull Mm -hmm. from the whole internet universe of information Mm -hmm. with the assumption that that information is going to be correct. And they're Mm -hmm. like, they're, you know, putting their faith and trust into the new robot overlords. I think you're right that this is a really clever solution to basically an impossible problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um that that I think we all agree these people shouldn't be experiencing yeah. in the first place. It's so interesting that that descri- that the uh, law has that detailed description that you were providing or that you were alluding to of what a sex act is or isn't, but they didn't mm-hmm. put the full description into chat GPT like it wasn't does this book include any of the following things? They just act, yeah. asked doesn't contain a sex act and I guess we're assuming then that chat GPT has the same definition of sex act that mm-hmm. the state of Iowa does. That's Yeah. Really interesting. Now, you mentioned when we were talking offline that you had tried a couple variations on the prompt and that maybe the responses were different depending on how you asked the question. Yeah. So um, Danica and I actually looked at this and let me pull up the messaging. So while I'm like pulling this up, the one thing I wanted to mention was that I also get the feeling that this particular school district doesn't think this law is going to stand very long. Mm. And I say that because they um, are not getting rid of the books. They're putting them in storage. (laughs) We'll just hide these under the rug until we need them again. Yeah. So it's very much feels like one of those situations where they're like, this is not going to hold up court. Like this is eventually not going to be a thing. Why would we throw them away? Um, We're just going to put them in storage to be in compliance with the law, which like, Honestly, at at this point, again, all these stories are depressing and frustrating. Mm-hmm. But then you, you read stories like this and you're like, okay, they're actually doing this in a really smart way. And like, I want to acknowledge that, you know, I see what you're doing. Um, and you're doing the best you can with like what you're what position you're in. Yeah, I was thinking if this were happening in Virginia, I would be, you know, horrified to see book bans happening in the school district where I pay taxes. Uh, but then I would read something like this and be like, well, at least like I'm not paying extra taxes to hire extra people to enforce this kind of thing. Like nobody, no school district should be having to hire additional folks to do this kind of work. All the school districts need, you know, more employees just in general and more resources mm-hmm. in general. But I don't want 
anyone to have to spend their day, you know, combing through the color purple <laughs> to determine mm-hmm. if it complies with a particular law, especially if, yeah, those books are going to be able to come back out uh, and be put into circulation. Again, this is a pretty ingenious solution. Do you have any inklings about whether it'll catch on? I don't know. Um, it's hard to say. And I think that a lot of the media that I've read on this, like, first of all, they did not, like, actually reach out to the school and ask for, like, what <laughs> what they did. Um, but I also think that, you know, this is just one of those things where I think each district is going to struggle to find a solution. Mm-hmm. And... In schools that are a little bit bigger, they might have prepared already, um, or schools which have been dealing with this, because there are several schools in Iowa where Moms for Liberty and similar groups have been very active and very, like, um, uh, have enjoyed agitating the districts. Mm -hmm. So they may already have, like, an idea of what they have to do. I really feel for the small libraries that don't know like um the small schools you know they don't have the staff and then there are still libraries in Iowa where the public library is also the school library and oh, this law only applies to the school libraries so these libraries where you've got both they don't know what to do because yeah. they can't cut off access to certain books for the school without then also cutting off access to those books for the public. Huh. That seems like an interesting path to a lawsuit for mm-hmm. ci- for concerned citizens. Yeah, I um, you know, I I really hope that there's a lawsuit that goes on here. Mm-hmm. Um I I <laughs> my, you know, I I have a like special place in my heart for Iowa. I went to college mm-hmm. there. So, um, you know, I remember when I was in college there in the early you know 2000s one of the biggest concerns that we talked about all the time at our school and throughout the state more broadly was this idea of the brain drain and the state has great higher education and they bring in people from all over the country who come and get a good mm-hmm. education but then they leave same thing um, you know Iowa residents get their really good education and then they leave Jobs in Iowa are not going to pay as much. They're not going to be as, like, in need of professional degrees. And so they move to other places. And that was a huge concern at the time. Um, You know, how do we get smart people to stay here? Well, I think that now they're in a different place when it comes to the brain drain, as in, like, can they even get people to want to come there in the first place? You know? You think about, like... Why would somebody who lives in Illinois, literally next Mm -hmm. to the state, where we have passed a bill that bans book bans, why would somebody who has had access to all of this information want to sit next to a student who, like, has not had the same information? Like, what's that classroom dynamic going to be? Sure. What's that higher education, you know, dynamic going to be? Um, I don't know the answers, but it's something that I think about a lot. Like, the brain drain has gone in a completely different direction now. 
Yeah, it's going to have this is going to have repercussions, I think, all across American culture and society. Mm -hmm. And that includes the workforce and the economy in Mm -hmm. ways that the folks on the far right don't seem to have connected or maybe in the most craven expression of it, they have connected it and they don't care. Maybe they're willing to pay the economic price for having the the control of everything. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know. Well, let's stay in the Midwest for a little bit. Um, But first, let's take another break for a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Entangled Publishing's Red Tower Books, publisher of the smash hit Fourth Wing. So this book I'm about to tell you about might be the next book talk, darling. It's a high octane fantasy adventure filled with risk, romance, action and sweet vengeance. In it, there are five liars who have five agendas, but only one target. So in Five Broken Blades from author Mae Corlin, the five most dangerous liars in the land have been mysteriously summoned to work together for a single objective, which is to kill the cruel God King June. Each has tasted bitterness, from the hired hitman seeking atonement to the lovely assassin dreaming of freedom, to even the prince exiled for his own crimes. This is a high-stakes game of treachery where the vengeance is sweet, the secrets are delicious, and each page deepens a journey that will keep you guessing until the very end. This also has themes of friendship, found family. You got a little bit of everything in this. Make sure to check out Five Broken Blades. And thanks again to Entangled Publishing's Red Tower Books, publisher of the smash hit Fourth Wing for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye. Bone familiar Rosie spends most of her days in the Bone Forest, hiding her powers to avoid conscription by the Witch King's army. But when she saves the life of Princess Shaw, she's offered the chance to attend the prestigious school Witch Hall. And at Witch Hall, Rosie finds herself embroiled in political games she doesn't understand. Shaw wants Rosie as a partner to help lead the coming war. Meanwhile, all Rosie wants is to stay out of trouble, but she can't really deny her attraction to Shaw. So the question is, will Rosie give in to her destiny or will the Bone Forest call her home once and for all? Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye is for all the magic school lovers. This immersive magic school is full of witches and familiars. It's also a queer normative fantasy world with a sapphic slow burn romance like we love. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye for sponsoring this episode. All right. So, um, man, Texas just shenanigans all the way around. And I was really entertained by this one because it was like, of course you did this. (laughs) So this week, um, an anti-LGBTQ board trustee for the Granbury Independent School District named Karen Lowry, who was elected last year on a platform of campaign promises, promising to, you know, take inappropriate books out of kids' schools, uh, was caught illegally sneaking into a high school library. Um, She claimed to allegedly claimed to the school clerk that she was showing up to this is like the worst part. I can't get over it, that she was showing up to help with a program in service of disadvantaged kids. They believed her. And then she was caught skulking around the school library. I just don't know what to say about this other than like, this is just, this is, but these behaviors have become so absurd. <laughs> like, can, 
can I just say, like, as soon as I saw this headline, I thought, I wrote about this a year ago. Um, Mm. And turns out it was a different person in a different state. (laughs) So this is not the first time that this has happened. Um, It makes you wonder, like, how often is this happening that we're not getting news stories about? Yeah, exactly. And it goes back to, in my mind, the the hero syndrome that's going on mm-hmm. with book bands. These people who want to be heroes and protect the kids, um, which we, we know is all BS. But, you know, they're going to go to any extreme they can to prove their point. And that extreme is terrifying. They're breaking into schools. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a parent... I don't care where you are. I don't care what your beliefs are. It is far more terrifying to think about some person breaking into your kid's school than it is for maybe a book on the shelf that you don't agree with. Absolutely. Yeah, a a good friend of mine who is a high school librarian was just in our group chat this morning saying like, this is the day of back to school prep where we have to do the school shooter drills. Mm -hmm. And you know that that's a nightmare every year to go through it and to think about it. The school where she's working has had uh, weapon detectors and metal detectors put in by the doors. And so they're getting trained that all of the staff are getting trained on like, what will the students need to know about that? What is the process for entering the building? going to be like. And when those are the daily realities and the problems that our educators and our young people are experiencing, and then you have just like absolutely idiotic behavior of uh, people hiding in the corners of high school libraries using their cell phone flashlights to Mm -hmm. look at books and try to determine if this book is dangerous. I, I felt like it really highlights just how skewed, how out of joint the the value system has become for some of these folks. And as you were saying, how far they're willing to go over something that for most people is either not a threat to students' health at all or a relatively minor one uh, compared to the very real, literally existential threats of school violence. Yeah. You know, that reminded me of another story that came out this week, um, I think Lawrenceburg, Kentucky is where it's from, where the newly hired director of the library there keeps a gun. Mm. Why does that director keep a gun? Because of people who come and protest pride displays. And you start thinking about that and you're like, wow, they're so concerned about some queer books on the shelf in a public library in a space where nobody has to go or nobody has to pick up any particular book, that the director of that library has to carry a gun for their safety. Like, that's where we're at with this. Mm-hmm. Um, what what happens when somebody gets a hold of that gun? Mm-hmm. And it connects to, you know, one of the big things that you have been saying all along in your coverage of book bans, which is that it's not about the books. Mm-hmm. It's about a bigger effort and intention to control the flow of information in mm-hmm. the country, to control what kinds of information people have access to, where that access comes from, who gets access, and who doesn't. And that leads to even bigger attacks on First Amendment rights. So why don't you tell us what happened in Kansas this week? Whew, um, I'm going to do my best to do this one. Um, so in a small town in Kansas. Let me let me back up a minute. Um, newspapers have been dying. Like, mm-hmm. anybody knows this. This is not news. Um, and before the pandemic, it was something like a quarter of all uh, small newspapers were closing every year. So we're losing, like, 
a significant number of small town newspapers every single year. Um, that accelerated during the pandemic for all the reasons that everything you know changed during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm giving that as context to talk about this story, which is that um, in the small town of Marion, Kansas, last weekend, um, police raided the um, publisher, uh, the publishing offices of their newspaper. The newspaper was called the Marion County Record. And so generally, newspapers are protected by First Amendment rights, which mm-hmm. means like... <laughs> Police can't just barge into a newspaper office and demand records to be handed over. Um, They can't just serve a warrant. It has to go through a whole process for them to, like, have sufficient evidence Mm -hmm. that they can do the search and seizure. Well, that didn't happen here. Um, There was apparently a story by one of the reporters. Now, this is, again, small paper um, that was looking at... The, I think it was the driving record of one of the local restaurant owners. And this restaurant owner accused the paper of doing this in an illegal way. Well, people who work in the newspaper know, like, know how to use sources and stuff in a way that like keeps the sources safe. And that's not mm-hmm. illegal. Like This is protected information. Um, and the paper decided not to run the story because <laughs> when they were fact-checking the story, like they couldn't fact-check yeah. like what they wanted to do. So this they is the piece not. of it that really kills me. That like, yeah. there wasn't even a story. There was there just, wasn't. this person just had knowledge that the reporter was looking into her. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And so... They raided the office. Um, They stole all of their materials. We're talking like all of their tools to do the writing, tools Mm -hmm. to do the publishing and printing. And this is the part that is like disturbing. The really, really sad part is that um, because of this, the stress caused the death of one of the co-owners. She was 98 years old, still working at this paper. Um, And she died because of Mm -hmm. the stress related to all of this. Um, There hasn't been a paper put out since. They don't know, like... How could they? (laughs) Right, right. They don't know what the future might look like. Um, You know, and and so this particular MSNBC story, you know, I'm going to just read this a little bit. Um, To be clear, receiving information from a source is not a crime, nor is it a crime to fact check that information, to publish that information, or in this case, not publish that information. To the contrary, receiving tips, checking them out and deciding what, if anything, to do with that information if it's confirmed is the daily work of journalists and newsrooms. Um, Even if the source who provided information to the record obtained it illegally, Supreme Court precedent holds that the paper cannot be held liable for receiving or publishing that information unless it has also participated in the illegal activity. There was absolutely no basis for any Mm -hmm. of this. Um, Somebody lost their life. And I think in addition to that, like this should be really chilling for anybody who... um, not just writes papers, you know, writes the news, uh, but anybody who expects the news to, like, report on what's going on. Um, one of the, like, really wonderful values about news is that, you know, it operates on people sharing stories. It operates on getting this information through sources. And when you are in a situation that, in this case, um, you know, 
that information you share might not be safe. Um, people aren't going to come forth with stories anymore. You're not going to get to the truth because if people don't feel safe sharing that with the paper, if they don't feel like their identity is going to be protected, then why would they share those tips? Um, and that's the whole point, right? Like that's mm -hmm. the whole point of this situation is to create that chilling effect so that the newspapers who are doing their jobs um, can't do their jobs so that our, you know, system in America to keep other people accountable, particularly governmental bodies, uh, politicians, if people don't feel like they can share this information, um, they're not going to. And we're going to have a whole slew of um, information that goes unreported. And that is going to be a danger to every single one of us. And that's the goal, right? Like mm -hmm. we yeah. lived through everyone who lived through the Trump administration remembers seeing Donald Trump on Twitter routinely threatening journalists, mm -hmm. routinely claiming that journalists should be punished, should be investigated, should be prosecuted, should be thrown in jail simply for asking questions, gathering stories, doing exactly the kind of work that you're talking about that is journalist jobs and getting providing citizens with a safe way to share their stories, providing people who were involved in and impacted by criminal behaviors to share their stories and to get information out that the public deserves to have as we make decisions about you know, how to participate in our democracy. Four mm -hmm. years of that, and then all of the things that have happened since he left office up to and including like the news that is still breaking today about the reactions that he's having to indictments, to the coverage of indictments, to the way that he's being investigated by governmental officials whose job it is <laughs> to gather information and use it to conduct investigations, has contributed to a real erosion of trust in media on mm -hmm. the right wing. Or they only trust very particular kinds of media now. And that is also the goal. Erode mm -hmm. trust in traditional journalism and only trust us and we will tell you what to believe. And then the rest of the citizenry who needs access to information to help us determine how we're going to vote, who we're going to vote for, put together, you know, understandings of how to participate in this democracy will not have that information. And that's what they're hoping to achieve. So like, th that is how this is connected to all of these book banning stories. Yep. This is one of those pieces of the something bigger that you've been talking about. Yeah, it all ties together. It's all about you know, there, there's the bit of paternalism that you talked about that mm -hmm. we should just trust in, you know, what the authorities are telling us. Um, but there's also this reality that if they get rid of all the means of sharing information and allowing people access to facts and to truth, um, you know, they can't construct the reality that they want to construct because an informed citizenry is a threat to yes. power. And so if they can take out all those opportunities for citizens to better themselves, to learn, to, you know, to use their own phrase, do your own research, um, mm -hmm. the more power they have, the more they're able to break down these places of intellect, these places of, like, actual inquiry and information. Um, yeah, I... It all fits together, you know, is the, mm -hmm. is the long and short of it. And I don't think that this is going to be the first that we see of this. I think that it hasn't been widely reported 
And that's also a concern. Like, that's a concern I have, period, about book bans. Um, You know, there's a a story that's also been going around this week about Campbell County in Wyoming. The board just fired the very popular director there because the director would not pull books because the director, you know, won't subscribe to their right-wing philosophies. And it got a lot of attention, like rightly so. But where have these people been? This story's been going on since, you know, summer 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, like, literally. It may have even started before then. But, like, if you go to bookriot.com and you search Campbell County, you're going to pull up stories from mid-2021. Like, this is not new news. Um, yeah. But it's it's new because all of a sudden there's a big hook here that the, yes. you know, media can share. And, like, good. I'm glad that that's getting out there. But, like, where have you been? Um <laughs> Welcome, you know. better late than never, but please come sooner next time. Yeah, like we could have cut this all off years ago had, you know, people paid attention yeah. to folks who were screaming about it years ago. Um, but, you know, that hasn't happened. It's a lot to process. And there is something that feels kind of beautiful mindy about be- putting all connecting all of these dots and saying that really, look, this is part of something bigger. Um, and I, I was putting together our Today in Books newsletter this morning and came across an entry from um, Saeed Jones, the poet and author, his substack, mm-hmm. that um, he was like, okay, just basically let me float this conspiracy theory that I have. And, you know, he's kind of using conspiracy theory and scare quotes, but here's the deal. And he just says, the point is that fascists don't just want to remove copies of the bluest eye from our public libraries. They want to remove public libraries from our democracy. Yep. Fascists don't just want to remove AP African-American studies classes from public schools. They want to remove public schools from our democracy. Yep. And I am worried that many of us are expending a great deal of time, money and energy in defense of specific books or lesson plans rather than fighting to defend the public institutions themselves. Mm-hmm. And just like the slowest of slow claps and standing ovations for that. It's such a succinct way to put it. And I feel like we should just put that on the t-shirts and on all the campaign slogans for 2024. <laughs> like, that's what we're trying to do here. It's It really is about, um, as Joe Biden has been telling us, the soul of our democracy, whether you are a Biden fan or not, like the culture war, whatever you want to call it, is not a culture war, but really is about what is the shape of American democracy going to be? And these book bans are part of it. Escalations into attacks on newspapers are part of it. And it will continue to escalate unless we find a concerted way to protect our public institutions. Yep. And, you know, I'm going to circle back to that little phrase that you use there, culture wars. Like, Mm -hmm. it has been my biggest... I shouldn't say biggest. One of my biggest pet peeves that this phrase keeps being used again and again Mm -hmm. and again to talk about this, um, because this is not a culture war. Culture war suggests a 50-50 fight. Uh, This is not a 50-50 fight. This is maybe a 10-90 fight. Uh, Maybe 10% of the public believes in this, like, very far right-wing Christian nationalist agenda. Um, That does not a culture war make. That is fascism. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like that it is a very different thing. And maybe we'll get some real hard numbers reflecting some of that out of your survey with every library just to sort of tie it all together (laughs) (laughs) and hope that the data will show us something compelling there. Um, I don't want to end on a totally bummer note. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about 
a positive thing that happened for libraries Mm -hmm. uh, over the last couple of weeks. And I just I think this is cool in like 25 different ways. Uh, So Jay-Z, famously a resident of Brooklyn, grew up in Brooklyn. uh, And the Brooklyn Public Library has an exhibition going on right now honoring his career. The exhibition is called The Book of Hove. And one of the ways that they are promoting this is through 13 original Brooklyn Public Library cards that contain Jay-Z's album artwork on them. Uh, And it's become like a Pokemon gotta catch them all (laughs) situation. (laughs) Uh, The cards are available to anyone with a New York State ID and have resulted in more than (laughs) 11,000 new accounts (laughs) being created. Just for some context, that's a 1,000% increase. That's 10 times the Mm -hmm. number of new signups that they normally get in the last two weeks of July. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm really incredible stuff. Um, I thought that I was being clever when I wrote a headline for Today in Books that pulled on, like, if you're having book problems, I feel bad for you, son. And then I saw this morning that the New York Times morning newsletter called it Card Knock Life. So just like, (laughs) I want to tip my cap uh, to the writer who came up with that because that was the better headline for sure. This got me thinking about... Like, obviously, Jay-Z, one of the biggest stars of our lifetimes, and if anyone was going to be able to make a hit out of special library cards, it was Jay-Z. But it got me thinking about what other, like, creative partnerships between creative celebrities and libraries we might be able to see or, like... What kind of local celebrity in other states could generate anything similar to this? Like, I assume that a Taylor Swift, yeah, you know, like, where's she from, Tennessee? Like, a Taylor Swift-Nashville Public Library partnership would be uh, equally bonkers. Maybe Beyonce could go to Houston. Um, and do you have any thoughts? I mean, we were just at the beginning of the show before we recorded talking about some of the concerts we've been going to this summer. Is there anybody that, like, you would go Pokemon for <laughs> if they had library cards? Honestly, probably not. Um, like I'm just like not my style, but I would think a thing is cool, you know. Um mm-hmm. when you were saying that, like my first thought was Taylor Swift would like get people um, you know, to really like want to Pokemon <laughs> for those cards, but also mm-hmm. like might create a problem that said library could not handle in terms right. of like um interest. Mm-hmm. Might be too much. Yeah, yeah. It's, like it would be so overwhelming. That's a that's a great point. This might be a one off, um, but I just thought it was really cool to see. I love to see libraries like persisting in doing this kind of creative work, doing the thing that libraries exist to do, even in the face of all the threats that public libraries are under these days. And I was really like, I was talking to Bob about it last night. I was like, what perfect timing for this? Like Mm -hmm. when the library needed a, like, the library as a public institution could really benefit from a cool moment and an opportunity to invite folks in to get library cards and and to access public library resources who didn't previously have library cards. Like, if Jay-Z is the thing that gets you to get a library card, beautiful. If Taylor yeah. Swift would get you to do it, beautiful. Like, I don't care who it is. But mm-hmm. I would I, I left feeling like more like this, please. Like, I hope that the Brooklyn public librarians are going to take this and like do a presentation at ALA and get other libraries thinking about ways that they might be able to do something similar. I thought it was really fun. I assume you may have talked about this in a previous episode, but um, when they opened the exhibit, 
Jay-Z also made a very big donation to yes. Brooklyn Public Library's um, anti-censorship efforts. So mm-hmm. it all ties in as well. Um, just I just think it's a really cool partnership. And, you know, there there was a line in this particular story um, that said, you know, the library leadership understands that hip-hop and black culture has been mm-hmm. the site of cool and cool yes. sells. It's very savvy and right on. It like, is. It is. It's so smart. It's really, really smart. I love to see it. Um, Just to wrap up one of our regular beats here on the Book Riot podcast, a little adaptation moment. Uh, We talked a lot about Zakia Delilah Harris's book, The Other Black Girl, when it came out in 2021. For those of you who need a refresher, that it was her debut novel. It's about a young black woman who gets what she thinks is her dream job in publishing. She's the other black girl because there is only one other black girl working there at the time. And like, it's messed up in the ways that publishing is usually messed up. And also it has some like horror story, like actual horror, not just bad experience stuff uh, that comes up in the book. The jacket copy at the time promised that the other black girl would be like the Devil Wears Prada meets Get Out. Um, And I had said on the show at the time, I read the book and I liked it, but I thought, you know, had some debut novel problems. I didn't quite think the Get Out vibes worked, but Hulu's adaptation of the series, which drops September 13th. The full-length trailer is out now. I've watched it through a couple of times this morning, and I think the adaptation might have captured that. Like, It looks like they've got the horror vibe happening. Creepy things are going on. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Uh, Did you have a chance to watch the trailer this morning? I did not, um, and I have not read the book. So, okay. Yeah, I can't can't (laughs) speak to it. All right. Well, we will put a link to the trailer in the show notes as well, folks. You can let us know what you think. Uh, Make sure to check out The Other Black Girl when it releases on Hulu on September 13th. And I don't know if we'll talk about it here, if we might get to it on Patreon. I think Erica might be planning to cover it over on our In Reading Color newsletter. So we'll put a link to that as well. And y'all can, if you're not already subscribed to In Reading Color, um, that's a wonderful newsletter that Erica Ezefeti does all about books by and about people of color. Um, So you can check that out as well. Kelly, thank you for joining me for a difficult but important conversation. Um, I hope that we'll, you know, get to be a little bit more fun the next time you're here. We need another Bigolus Diggolus. Diggolus Bigolus. <laughs> I cannot get it right no matter how many it's times I say it. It's funny either way. Yeah, it is. Like it's Your funny. mouth to we... God's ear. Just let's yeah. manifest it. <laughs> let's make it happen. Like that would be great. You know, or right. or more like Britney Spears memoir type news. Like, yes. I want some of that like candy, like cotton candy well, stuff. I look forward to being here with you in October talking about yeah. Britney Spears. <laughs> so that's yeah. going to happen. <laughs> in the meantime, folks, uh, we will be off next week. Jeff will, will be remaining on vacation. And in this feed, you will find uh, an interview that he conducted with Josh Cook, who's a bookseller from Porter Square Books in Boston and has a new book out called The Art of Libromancy that's all about the current state of independent bookselling. Really terrific and interesting set of essays. It's a really fun conversation that they've had. So I hope you'll hang out here in the feed and enjoy that interview and then check out Jeff's side project first edition. In the meantime, you can find the links to everything that we've talked about here in the show notes at bookriot.com slash listen. You can send us your emails at podcast at bookriot.com. And in the meantime, stay safe and have a good end of your summer. Thanks again, Kelly. Thank you. 